the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter made the following observation about Christian ministry. He said, it's no easy matter to speak so plain that the ignorant may understand us, so seriously that the deadest hearts may feel us, and so convincingly that contradictory cavaliers may be silenced. What he's saying is that spiritual truth is not easily spiritually discerned. In fact, as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, there are spiritual barriers that exist in this world that inhibit the clear communication of spiritual truth. Now, that is an ominous thought for us today. What that means is, what I'm attempting to do over the next 40 minutes is overcome obstacles. And that if there's any good that's going to come to you, barriers are going to have to be overcome in order for the truth of God's Word to land upon you helpfully. God illustrated the reality of those barriers one time when He came to His prophet Ezekiel and led him to a valley where there were lots of bones. It was a valley where there had been wars fought, and so the bones of those slain soldiers were collected there. They were dry, they were dusty. And God said to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel said, Lord, I don't know, you know. And so God said to Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. So there he is a valley of bones, and a preacher, aware of there's lots of barriers for anything good to happen, and he begins to preach. And miraculously, the bones began to come together, and the sinews began to connect the bones, and flesh begins to cover the bones, but there's still just dead bodies. And so the Lord says, Son of man, prophesy to the wind, which was symbolic for the Holy Spirit, and call for the wind. So he calls for the Spirit, and the text says that the Spirit of God came and breathed life into those lifeless bodies. And what had once been a valley of dead, dry bones became an incredible army assembled by the Lord through the power of His Word and His Spirit. In a sense, that is a picture of the challenge that takes place Every time a man of God stands before people with the Word of God seeking to explain what that Word says and apply that Word in such a way that it is received. Left to himself, such a man is nothing and can do nothing. Without the Lord's power at work through His Spirit, nothing lasting will happen. But when the Lord takes His Word through the power of His Spirit, then people can hear that Word and be made alive. Left to ourselves, any attempt to explain the truth of God's Word and help people to see and understand that Word will not have any eternal significance for people. Because what must happen can only happen through the ministry of the Spirit who takes that Word and causes it to land effectually upon those who hear. We are dependent 
upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the good news is that we today are living in the age of the Holy Spirit. We live in this New Testament era that began with the coming of Jesus Christ and that had an incredible display of what it was going to be like when the ascended Son, together with the Father, sent the Spirit into the world on the day of Pentecost in order to fill His people, in order to live in this world, to accompany His Word and do His work throughout the end of history. Acts chapter 2 describes that incredible event where the Spirit owned the Word and thousands were converted in one day. Well, recognizing our dependence upon the Spirit, remembering it, believing it, will help us to take heart and be encouraged as we seek to minister God's Word, whether in times of worship like this or times informally when you're sitting with a friend and reading the Scripture together or trying to explain the Scripture, it will encourage us to remember that we're dependent upon the Spirit and that God has given us His Spirit and that we are not on our own. The Apostle Paul makes this point in the third chapter of 2 Corinthians as he contrasts the ministry that we now have in the age of the New Covenant, which Jesus inaugurated, to the ministry that existed under the Old Covenant that was inaugurated by the prophet Moses. We continue our study of 2 Corinthians today by coming to consider the argument that the Apostle Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, down to the end of the chapter in verse 18. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided, that's page 965. Encourage you to take a copy of God's Word, open it up, and follow along. If you're not used to reading the Bible and it's not familiar to you, the big numbers on the pages are divisions of chapters. The little numbers are divisions of verses. And I'm going to be starting in chapter 3, verse 7, and read all the way down to the end of that chapter. It would be helpful if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you because I'm going to be referring back to these verses as we work our way through this particular text for our study today. So hear the Word of God from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of, of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
If you look at verse 6, just above the passage that I read, you'll see Paul describing himself as a minister of a new covenant. And then in verses 7 through 18, which we just read, he builds an argument to show that the ministry of the new covenant greatly surpasses the ministry of the old covenant. In order to make his case, Paul employs a method of argumentation called a fortiori. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And it's a form of argumentation that's found throughout the Bible. In fact, Jesus employs this form of arguing from the lesser to the greater. So if 10 is more than 2, then certainly 20 is more than 2. That's the way the argument moves. We see Jesus employing this in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He encourages us not to be anxious. And he reasons from the lesser to the greater in order to bring this encouragement. Listen to what he says in verse 26 of Matthew 6. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Then he does it again in verse 28. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do you see the logic? Jesus is saying, if God takes care of such insignificant creatures as field birds, wildflowers, will he not much more take care of his highest creation, people he has made in his image, and who as his children he has redeemed by the blood of his son? See, Jesus is making a spiritual truth and he's making it with a logical argument. That's what Paul does in the text that is before us today. He employs this logical argument to convince us that new covenant ministry far surpasses ministry under the old covenant. Now, there are two parts to his argument. The first part is found in verses 7 through 11, where he argues for the greater glory of ministry in the new covenant. Then in verses 12 through 18, he argues for the greater effectiveness of ministry in the new covenant. Back in verse 3... Paul begins to hint at the contrast between the Old and New Covenants. There he says that the Corinthian believers are people in whose heart the Spirit of God has actually worked. He's written in their hearts. He's transformed their hearts. And he contrasts that with God writing on tablets of stone. And when he invokes that language of tablets of stone, immediately he's calling to our minds what happened on Mount Sinai with Moses when he went up into the mountain to receive from God the law of God. On that occasion, God instituted an old covenant, what we call now an old covenant, a covenant with Israel for them to be his people, for them to be the caretakers of his promises, the recipients of his prophets, for them to be the ones before whom the whole world would be displayed, God's greatness, his power, his justice, and his grace. With the coming of Jesus Christ, that old covenant relationship with Israel passed away. And a new covenant was established. 
This new covenant was established through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So on the night of his last supper with his disciples, just a few hours away from being arrested and then crucified, Jesus, after supper, took a cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Signifying that what he was about to do in a few hours on the cross was going to institute, it was going to seal a new covenant. An arrangement whereby God saves his people from our sins. In the text before us today, Paul is arguing for the superiority of ministry in this new covenant that Jesus Christ has secured by his death and resurrection. Superiority to the old covenant, which was instituted through the mediation of Moses on Mount Sinai when God revealed his purposes for the nation of Israel. New covenant ministry is greater in its glory and it's greater in its effectiveness. Let's consider Paul's argument. In verses 7 through 11, he argues that new covenant ministry is greater than old covenant ministry in glory. And he explains why by highlighting three contrasts between old covenant ministry and new covenant ministry. First of all, in verses 7 and 8, he says that it's greater because the ministry, it is the ministry of the Spirit as opposed to old covenant ministry, which he calls the ministry of death. It's interesting. Verse 7. Old covenant ministry referred to as the ministry of death. And yet, he says, it was glorious. How was it glorious? Well, God gave his law to Moses and the people of Israel to show them the way of life. To show them what God requires. He didn't leave them without revelation. He didn't leave them without a standard, without a clear direction from on high. When Moses received that law, after spending 40 days on Mount Sinai with God, his face shined brightly because he had been in the presence of God. It was reflecting the glory of God. The glory of God. That is, the significance of God. The gravity of God. The Old Testament word for glory means weight or weightiness, the substance of God. Moses, being in God's presence, when he came from that presence, the impact upon him was such that there was a physical demonstration that reflected the glory of the One in whose presence he had been. When he returned to the Israelites, they couldn't gaze upon the face of Moses because of the brightness of the face that was looking at them. The reflection of the glory of God in Moses' face. Why was that? Well, because they had hardened their minds and hearts toward the Lord. The, the first time Moses went up to receive the law, maybe you'll remember what happened. While he was up there meeting with God, God is instituting a covenant relationship with people he's just delivered out of the bondage of Egypt that they'd been in for 400 years, the people get antsy and impatient down at the bottom of the mountain. And they build golden calves and begin worshiping golden calves while the God who has saved them is up there communicating his will to Moses for them. They'd hardened their hearts against God. And so now God is giving Moses a second 
addition, a second rendering of His commandments. And when He comes down, the reflected glory of God in Moses' face is such that these hard-hearted Israelites could not even gaze upon Him. To be in the presence of God with His great glory is a fearful thing if you are clinging to your sin and if you have hardened your heart against God. And that is what was going on in that account that I read from Exodus chapter 34 that Paul has in mind here in this portion of 2 Corinthians. So the law of God that Moses communicated to the Israelites, though a glorious thing, a great thing for him to do, became to those Israelites because of their sin a ministry of death. They couldn't keep it. And because they couldn't keep it, they fell under its curse. As Ezekiel 18.20 says, the one who sins shall surely die. And as they looked at the law and dealt honestly with the law, their only prospect was death. John Bunyan illustrates this truth wonderfully well in a portion of his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. In part of the story, there's a a pilgrim named Faithful who's been converted to Jesus, and he's now walking with Christian, who's another convert to Jesus. And they're on the way to the celestial city, and Faithful begins to tell his testimony. And he tells about a time when he was struggling up a hill called Difficulty. And as he's going up this hill, he said he looks behind him, and there's a man chasing him. And when the man catches up to him, he hits him with the word and leaves him for dead. So Faithful says, I came too. And the man came to me again and hit me again and left me for dead. And he said, I came to again and I said, mercy, man, mercy. And the man says, I don't know how to show mercy. And hit me again and left me for dead. You learn later in the story that man was Moses. And what he hit him with was the commandments of God. And what Bunyan is showing us is exactly what Paul is teaching us here. That the law in and of itself cannot save you. The law, in and of itself, can only kill you. That's what the Israelites understood. That's what they had to come to deal with. The honesty of dealing with God's law led them to this. Paul sees this, and now he refers to that ministry under the Old Covenant as a ministry of death. The Ten Commandments can never provide life and salvation to sinners. Though those commandments are good and righteous and just, in and of themselves, because they are a transcript of the very character of God, that law teaches us what is right and wrong, but left to ourselves because of our sin, we cannot properly obey it and attain the righteousness that it requires. So deal honestly with the commandments of God, in and of yourself, like those Old Testament Israelites, and you will experience death that's why paul writes as he does in galatians chapter 3 verse 10 for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse what is written cursed is everyone who does not abide in all the things that are written in the book of the law and do them the ministry of the law the ministry of the old covenant though glorious is always a ministry of death for sinners 
Yet Moses' face, as his shining face demonstrated, that ministry came with glory. Ministry of death, but it came with glory. And if that is so, Paul argues in verse 8, how much more glorious is new covenant ministry in the Spirit? So, we have contrasted ministry of death to ministry in the Spirit. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, he writes, have even more glory? Why? Because this is a ministry that does not merely show what is required to have life, but this is a ministry that actually provides what is necessary for life. The Spirit of the living God changes hearts and minds. He is alive and He makes alive. He opens spiritual eyes. He unstops spiritual ears so that Jesus Christ might be seen and heard by faith. He reveals Jesus to people who have barriers between the truth of the Gospel and themselves. He overcomes those barriers and He makes Jesus known and the message of Jesus becomes powerful and effectual in a person's life. He so works that He grants faith to people, strengthening us to be able to trust Christ, to believe Christ. Ministry under the Old Covenant left sinners without any recourse or any hope. It revealed God's law and therefore their failure to live up to that law, but it could not save them from death that violation of that law required. Yet that ministry was so weighty, so glorious, that the face of Moses as the mediator of it shined after being in the presence of God. The Israelites couldn't bear to gaze on his face because of the physical reflection of God's glory. That was an impressive ministry. But Paul says that the ministry of the Spirit we have today is much more impressive. Why? Because it does not leave us helpless in the face of the law's demands. The Spirit saves us by leading us to Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law's demands for all who trust in Him. And that makes the new covenant ministry of the Spirit far more glorious than the old covenant ministry of death. But there's a second reason that the new covenant ministry is more glorious than the old covenant ministry. Paul says in verse 9, because it is the ministry of righteousness as opposed to the ministry of condemnation. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Old covenant ministry is now called a ministry of condemnation because that's all that the law can do for sinners. The only relationship that a person in sin can have to the law of God is a relationship of condemnation. Why? Because the law requires perfect obedience. But the law doesn't provide any power to obey. The only thing the law of God can do for sinners is convict us of our sin and condemn us for not obeying God completely. Left to ourselves, no sinner can ever attain the righteousness that the law requires. That's why Paul writes what he does in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, 
no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That is all that the law can do for sinners like you and me left to ourselves. Yet the old covenant ministry that revealed that law was glorious because Paul, Paul says God didn't leave the world ignorant of his requirements. How much more glorious then must be the new covenant ministry which Paul refers to now as a ministry of righteousness. Righteousness. Ministry of condemnation as opposed to a ministry of righteousness. The righteousness of which Paul speaks is a provided righteousness. What the law required under the old covenant, the gospel supplies under the new covenant. The Israelites under the old covenant could never attain the righteousness that the old covenant required by trying to keep its terms and conditions. When Jesus came into the world, he did attain the righteousness that the covenant of law requires. And he did it through his life of obedience and his death on the cross. In doing so, immediately after saying no person can be saved or justified before God in his sight by keeping the law, Paul goes on, on in Romans chapter 3 thinking of what Jesus has done and he says this in verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. By living a life of perfect obedience to God's law, Jesus is the only person who's ever attained righteousness through his own efforts. The righteousness that the law demands of you and me, Jesus earned. The righteousness that God requires of every one of us in this room, Jesus has himself obtained. And the only way that you and I can get that righteousness is by getting Jesus and the only way we get Jesus is by faith, trusting Him. It is for all, Paul says, who believe. Now, seeing this, this, is, this is a, brings us to a profound question. Do you have the righteousness that God requires? If you look at yourself, I hope you're honest enough to admit no. I have not perfectly kept God's commandments. And so the further question comes, well then what will you do when the day comes that you must stand in God's courtroom to give an account in answer to that righteous requirement? Where will you look? Where will you go for righteousness that God requires? There's only one place that righteousness has been provided. And it is in Jesus Christ. He has attained righteousness. And sinners can get His righteousness credited to us not by doing, not by trying harder, not by somehow thinking, well, surely if I do this or I don't do that, then, then God will be satisfied with that. But by renouncing all of that and coming to Jesus and falling before Him and trusting Him as Lord. So have you trusted Jesus as Lord? Is Jesus your righteousness? If not, then friend, hear what the Word of God says. The 
ministry of <clears throat> the old covenant, the ministry of the law dealing with people in their sin is a ministry of death and condemnation. And you're still under that condemnation. And until you get in Christ, you will live forever under condemnation. But in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Get in Christ. God will look at the righteousness of His Son. and He will credit it to you because you have trusted in His Son and renounced all of your own efforts to be righteous. This is what makes the glory of the New Covenant ministry far exceed the glory of Old Covenant ministry. There's an old poem that is attributed to John Bunyan. I don't know that he actually wrote it. But it says this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. What we need what is required, we can't supply. But what we need, what is required, God has supplied. And He supplied it in His Son. It's in Jesus. So come to Jesus, believe Jesus, trust Jesus, and have Jesus be your righteousness before God. Well, there's a third reason that Paul gives for the greater glory of the New Covenant ministry over Old Covenant ministry. It's found in verses 10 and 11. It's because the New Covenant ministry is permanent as opposed to Old Covenant ministry being temporary. Listen to what he says. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Old Covenant ministry was never designed by God to be permanent. It was always temporary. The establishment of Israel as a covenant nation was temporary. The giving of the Old Testament prophets was temporary. The provision of Old Testament kings was temporary. The providing priests in the Old Testament was temporary. The construction of the tabernacle and later the temple was temporary. All of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was temporary. It was all preparatory. It was preface to what was coming, designed to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus into the world to save sinners. And so <clears throat> the glory of Old Covenant ministry was significant because it did indeed reveal God's will, His glory, but it was temporary. Paul is saying it has fulfilled its purpose. New Covenant ministry has surpassed it and remains forever. Everything the Old Testament looked forward to, the New Testament has caused to be realized in Christ. So He is the one true and final prophet. He is the final high priest. He is the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. He is the ultimate final sacrifice for sin. He is the true temple of God. The true Israel. The firstborn, one and only Son of God. All of the Old Testament revelation that was pointing forward to the coming salvation of Jesus were types and shadows. And with the coming of Jesus, they passed away. We're not under them. 
We don't look to them in any way to make us right with God because the reality has come. And that reality is far greater in its glory than anything that had gone before. This new covenant in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus far surpasses the glory that was revealed in all of the ministry of the old covenant. Have you ever been outside at night on a clear night when there's a full moon? It's a full moon right now. If it's a clear night tonight, you can do it. You go out and you just stand there and you look and and the, the glory of that moon is incredible. It's radiance. It's the brightest object in the heavens. And it's fascinating to me to, to see a full moon. It almost makes things appear almost like daylight. And that moon is unsurpassed in its glory in the sky. Until the sun rises. When the sun comes, you don't even know there's a moon. It's passed away. In the same way, the coming of Jesus Christ has come with such a fuller display of the glory of God that all of the glory that existed under the Old Covenant, real though it was, has been surpassed. It's come to an end. That's what Paul is saying. The Old Covenant provision was glorious, but compared to what we now have in Jesus Christ, it doesn't hold a candle. Well, having established that New Covenant ministry is greater in glory than Old Covenant ministry, Paul goes on in the last part of our text, verses 12 through 18, to show that New Covenant ministry is greater in its effect over Old Covenant ministry. And he he cites four ways that New Covenant ministry is more effective than Old Covenant ministry. Verses 12 and 13, New Covenant ministry gives us boldness. Gives us boldness. Listen to what he says. For since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Knowing Christ and being justified before God on the basis of Jesus Christ gives confidence to us beyond what was possible for the ministry in the Old Covenant. Moses had to veil his face repeatedly so that the Israelites would not see what Paul calls the outcome of what was coming to an end. That outcome probably included judgment against their hard-heartedness in their sin. It probably included the reality that God was sparing them by having that veil over Moses' face. They could not behold His glory completely because they themselves were unrighteous. Paul, and together with Paul, all who are in Jesus Christ, who know the Lord savingly in this era, we have received the full and final revelation of God in Christ. And we can be sure this is it. There's nothing left to be accomplished. So we have no reason to be tentative or hesitant to talk about, to proclaim, to commend this good news of what Jesus has accomplished for sinners. That boldness includes a plainness of speaking so that we can tell the truth about God's law. We can tell the truth about sin. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend because what God has done for us in Jesus surpasses it all. Secondly, in verses 14, 15, and 16, 
Paul says that the new covenant ministry is greater in its effectiveness because it provides an unveiling, an unveiling. A veil kept Old Testament Israelites from beholding God's glory reflected in Moses' face. And Paul, taking up that theme, says a veil still remains over their hearts in verse 15 whenever the Old Testament is read. Why? Verse 14 says, because their minds were hardened. In the end of verse 14, he says, only in Christ that the veil is taken away. Their hard hearts are overcome. Verse 16, again, he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Paul here is making a very important point about the significance of the effect of sin on hearts and minds that have not been renewed by Jesus. What is true of people who have not been born of God's Spirit and are not trusting Jesus Christ savingly? A veil covers them. A veil separates them from the reality that is in Christ. In other words, there's a barrier that exists keeping them from receiving the Word of God. That barrier is sin and its impact. Paul picks up on this theme again in the very next chapter. In chapter 4, verse 3, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you think about what this means. There's a veil. Now Paul here is not talking about intellectual inability. He's not talking about an intellectual problem that keeps people from understanding the relationship of words and grammar and the, the meaning of sentences. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about a moral inability. He's talking about a volitional problem that people in sin have because of their sin. Jesus made this very point in John chapter 7, verse 17. When he says, if anyone wills to do his will, he will know of the doctrine whether or not it's from God. If you are willing to do God's will, then you'll know. The reason people don't know God is because they're simply not willing. The reason people can hear the Word of God taught to them and leave without any response positively to that Word, submitting themselves to Christ, is because they're unwilling. They're unwilling. Jesus makes it plain. If you are willing to do His will, you'll know. Do you want to know the teachings of Jesus Christ? Do you know them? That is... Have you come to see Christ as the great prophet, priest, and king and bow to Him as Lord? If not, the reason, Jesus said, is because you're unwilling. There's a veil that separates you from God. Your problem is not intellectual. Your problem is moral and volitional. Sin has hardened your mind. It has hardened your affections. It's made you unwilling to receive the truth. And the only way that veil is, re is removed is by the Lord. It's in Jesus Christ. When you turn from your way of living and say, okay, God, I'm willing. Show me. Reveal Jesus. Have me. 
in that you will experience the lifting of the veil. Because in that, God has already begun to work in you to make you willing to believe and to do His will. So are you trusting Christ as Lord today, friend? Are you? If not, then will you heed, will you hear what the Bible says about you? It's because there's a veil. Your problem's not intellectual. Your problem's moral. It's volitional. And your only hope is to have Jesus Christ himself come and pull that veil away and make himself known to you. So if nothing else today, call out to him. Acknowledge your situation, the seriousness of it, and appeal to him for mercy. Ask him to show you the truth, to open your understanding so that you might see and believe this good news. Third reason that the new covenant ministry is greater in its effectiveness is found in verse 17. It's because it gives freedom. Where the Lord, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Here Paul identifies the Lord as the Spirit, the Spirit as the Lord. He equates them. He's pointing toward the Trinitarian reality of our God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the presence of the Spirit gives freedom. The Spirit who is the Lord. Freedom to live before God authentically. Freedom to obey the commandments of God. To love Him supremely. To love people sincerely. Brothers and sisters, we're empowered by the Spirit to take out after a life of freedom that comes from knowing God and being known by God. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to play games. We don't have to pose. We don't have to suggest to other people or ourselves that things are different than the way they really are because we always live in the presence of God. And as we trust Jesus, the Spirit is always present in us to grant freedom. A fourth reason this ministry is superior is <clears throat> found in verse 18 because it results in transformation. What an incredible statement. Look at verse 18. Paul says, as he sums up this part of his argument, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Today, everyone who is trusting Jesus Christ is able to behold Him, to see Him with eyes of faith. That beholding of Christ comes by taking Him at His Word. By receiving His Word. Hearing His Word. Taking His Word over your life. Following Him. Communing with Him. Communing with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scripture says, results in spiritual transformation. Being increasingly made like Jesus degree by degree. Paul says, that's the result of the Spirit's work in us. He takes the Word. He applies it to us. He shows us Christ. He enables us to see the beauty that is in Christ, the greatness, the goodness that is in Christ. He draws us out after Christ so that the more we behold Him, we are transformed, becoming more and more like Him. And the day's coming when all who are in Christ, who have beheld Him, will become finally like Him. When He appears and we see Him as He is then this transformation will be complete. 
when Moses went intermittently into the presence of the Lord in the tent of meeting. He was physically transformed to such a degree that his face had to be veiled in the presence of the Israelites. Over the course of Moses' life, this repeated communion with the Lord also transformed him spiritually. It transformed him morally as well. In a similar way, we are transformed by beholding the Lord Jesus. But it's in reverse order to that which was experienced by Moses. As we live in the presence of the Lord, we are constantly before Him because the Spirit indwells us. And as we behold Him, we are being transformed. But our transformation comes through the renewing of our minds, the changing of our loves, the reordering of our loves, the results in the renewal of our physical actions. As we become like Him, we live to please Him. The more we behold Him, the more we cannot help but love Him. And the more we love Him, the more we want to live for Him so that our lives become transformed from one degree of glory to another. Brothers and sisters, if verse 18 is true, what does that teach us about our greatest need? What is our greatest need? Isn't it to behold the Lord? To behold Him? To know Him? To contemplate His greatness, His goodness, His glory? To meditate on the truth that is found in Jesus Christ? To come to Jesus and to consider what Jesus teaches us about our God? To behold Him in times of worship like this? In times of study? In times of prayer? In times of taking God's Word and letting it sink into our memories, calling it up so that our thoughts and our affections are oriented by it. As we behold the Lord, we become increasingly like Him. Paul says we move from one dimension and stage of glory to another. That's how we grow in grace. That's how we become more like Jesus. New Covenant ministry far surpasses ministry under the Old Covenant. We live in such a privileged time and place that God has provided for us the fullness of His revelation in Jesus Christ. Brothers, do you ever stop and think about this? Brothers and sisters, do you ever stop and consider that when you read about the Old Testament saints and their acts of faith and the way that they loved God, they only had partial revelation. But here we are today, we have the full revelation of God. We have everything God intends to say to us. We have the culmination of all that the Old Testament was pointing to. We have Jesus Christ. We're in a far better place than any Old Testament saint. And having Christ, we really do have everything. There's nothing that can come to my life that will leave me wanting, leave me in need of that which I ultimately need because I have it in Christ. Trials, disappointments, broken hearts, diminished resources, loss of health, loss of loved ones, loss of life itself. None of those can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because in Jesus... God has given us Himself. 
This belongs to us because we've been made participants in the new covenant. We have entered into a right relationship with our God and Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. Not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what He has done. So live boldly. Live hopefully. Live full of joy. Live with the increasing conviction that what God has revealed in Christ is not only what we need, it is what this world needs. Let us be faithful ambassadors of that incredible news that there is a Savior who once for all has done everything necessary to save sinners from their sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for giving him to us. We thank you. Nothing was left to chance. Nothing was left to be added to in his life and death and resurrection. I pray that you would help us to see what Paul saw as he was writing to the Corinthians about the incredible superiority of ministry in the new covenant to all that had gone before. Lord, help us to see our privileged status in having the full revelation of Christ. And I pray for those who are in the room today who still have a veil over their hearts. They're still not seeing and believing the truth that is in Christ. Your word says that only in Christ is the veil removed and only the Lord can do it. God, would you not today by your spirit come and speak words that raise the spiritually dead? Would you not reveal Jesus savingly? Hear our prayers. For Jesus' sake. Amen.